Now, I was a, a teacher for some time, and uh, did you know that teachers sometimes play pl- pranks on their classes? I don't know if you uh, knew this. Sometimes they even gang up together as teachers uh, to do so. When I was in primary school, someone that I know was the victim of such a prank. Uh, I wasn't in the class, but the story goes that uh, they were doing science and they were doing experiments with levers and all that sort of thing. They didn't have enough weights to make one lever work, so someone in the class was sent to the other end of the school to another teacher uh, to go and get one. The teacher said to them, uh, what do you want? And they said, uh, I, I, I've been told to ask for a big weight. So the teacher said, well, just stand over there. And of course, the child went dutifully and stood there. About 15 minutes later, the teacher came back to the child and said, you can go now. I don't understand, said the child. Well, you've had your big weight. You can go now. I know that story's true because my sister, the same two teachers, she was sent uh, for a long stand at one point with similar results. So uh, 15 minutes, though, is not a big weight uh, in the scheme of things, is it? The weight that we're going to speak about this morning is a much, much longer, at least 2,000 years long. Jesus' followers here at the time didn't understand that this was what Jesus was meaning when he talked about the future. So he's going to help them understand that this big weight was coming and what they were to do in the meanwhile. And just because we're talking about school, we're going to give us a bit of maths to help us uh, with our headings this morning. Our first heading is that the time to the kingdom was greater than expected, verses 11 and 12. Let's, let's read those again in our passage. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said to them, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. As we reach Jerusalem here, we're reaching the end of a huge section in Luke. Jesus has been talking about going to Jerusalem for all things to be fulfilled since Luke chapter 9, verse 51, which uh, is on the back of your notice sheets. When those days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So we have had 10 chapters in Luke's gospel of Jesus travelling to Jerusalem. And he has mentioned that he's going to Jerusalem eight times in those 10 chapters. And Jesus has been raising expectations about what's going to happen in Jerusalem in a huge way. Jerusalem is where it's at. Jerusalem is where it will all be fulfilled. Jerusalem was seat of the old kings, seat of the temple of the living God. It's not surprising them with their misconceptions about who Jesus is and what he'd come to do, that the crowd and the disciples are expecting something huge in Jerusalem. And don't get me wrong, there will be something huge happen in Jerusalem, but not what they were expecting. They were expecting essentially the end of the world, ushering in the Messiah uh, messianic age, when Israel's enemies would be defeated, when the Messiah would take his throne and rule. They were expecting the fulfilment of the kingdom of God. You see, the Jews saw history this way. You had the old age, then the Messiah comes, and then you had the new age the age to come. That was the way that they viewed history. And they seemed to be thinking that as Jesus approached Jerusalem, that that was the time of this big arrow, that actually Jesus would bring the fulfilment of the kingdom. 
And here is Jesus on the outskirts of Jerusalem. In the very next passage, his disciples will enter Jerusalem and prepare his way. And he knows what they're thinking. They're on the cusp of that line. This is it. This is what we've been waiting for. The downfall of the Romans. Jesus on the throne. The end is nigh. Let's go see the end of the world. But that's not how it's going to play out. There's something that they have missed out. There's something deficient in their understanding. So Jesus tells them this parable to tell them what will happen. And the setting of the parable tells them, as our title suggests, that the time to the kingdom is greater than expected. The setting is of a nobleman who goes away to receive a kingdom. Now this is confusing to us because it doesn't really happen in the same way now. This isn't Dick Whittington going into London to seek his fortune. That's not what it's talking about. This is an heir to a throne or a position of authority who must have his claim approved by an emperor or a greater king. We get it in a little way. So Boris this week had to go see the queen, didn't he? But it's not such a long journey. It's just down the road. In olden days, they might have to travel thousands of miles to go see the emperor to have their uh, uh, throne and their title affirmed. And this has actually happened in Jesus' lifetime, almost exactly this situation. King Herod had died, and Archelaus was his heir in Judea. He was heir to the throne, but before he could become king, he had to go all the way to Rome to have his throne and his claim approved. So this is something that they would have been familiar with as he tells this story of the the leader who goes away, the nobleman. But we should say with this story, it's not an allegory. So as we go through, we don't have to match every single part of the story to something specifically in history or in Jesus' life. But Jesus clearly wants us to associate him with the nobleman who goes away to the far country. In other words, he's saying there's going to be a wait before Jesus actually takes his throne as king, if you like. Jerusalem will be where it begins... But there's going to be a long wait before the kingdom of God is fulfilled and God's enemies are finally defeated. There's going to be a gap, if you like, before the the final end of the world. So history looks a bit more like this. This is what he's explaining. It's one of my favourite diagrams. If you're a regular at Bethel, you know. That actually, as Jesus dies, it starts the new age, but the old age continues at the same time. We have the overlap of the ages. And it won't be finished until Jesus returns. And we live in that gap in between. That's what the disciples hadn't seen, that there was going to be that gap, that overlap of the ages. So the kingdom is coming. Jesus does bring in the new age, but not as they expected. The kingdom will be fulfilled, but not when they expected. And in between, they must wait. But what does waiting look like? Well, he continues to tell them in the parable. Oh, you'll have to hang on for that in a second. I think I put that in the wrong place. There we go. Waiting for the kingdom does not equal inaction. Waiting for the kingdom does not equal inaction. Let me read to you verses 13 and then 15 uh, to 26. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 miners and said to them, engage in business until I come. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. 
The first came to him, saying, Lord, your miner has made ten miners more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your miner has made five miners. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. We'll consider the, the other bit in a minute. This is what's often called the parable of the miners. I got quite excited when I heard that. I thought I could tell loads of stories of my uh, great uncles and their escapades down to Pitt uh, in South Yorkshire. Uh, but that's not the kind of miner uh, that it's talking about. The miner was a coin worth about £600 in today's money. Uh, and people complain, don't they, when you have a £50 note. So imagine getting changed for a £600 uh, coin. That must be a nightmare, wasn't it? But anyway, while the nobleman is away, he gives ten of his servants one of these minor coins and tells them to engage in business. Now, this is why we had Lord Sugar uh, up there. It, it does sound a little bit like The Apprentice, doesn't it, if you've ever seen that programme where they're sort of given something to do, they're given a task to do, they're given the resources to do it. And the idea is that later on he'll come back and he'll find out how they've done. That's basically uh, what is happening. It's a bit like The Apprentice. He's given them the instructions, and then he goes and leaves them to it. Uh, he wants his business to carry on while he's away. He doesn't want it to stop. Now, this is similar to the parable of the talents uh, that we see in Matthew's Gospel, but it's subtly different enough that we can tell it's a different story altogether. But teasing out some of the differences can help us understand the point that Jesus is making here. In the parable, he gives them these miners... But the amounts are the same. In the parable of the talents, each one is given different. In the parable of the talents, the idea is God has given us all different gifts, but we are required to use them. Here the emphasis is that God has given us all the same. God has given us one task. That's reinforced by the fact that there are ten servants here rather than three in the other. There's something universal about what God has done for his servants. He's given us all one job. What is emphasised then is the difference between how much they make. In the parable of the talents, each doubles what they're given apart from the last one. Here the first increases the nobleman's investment tenfold, and the second fivefold. And of course the last one doesn't increase it at all. But other than that, the parables are, are pretty similar. So what is the point that Jesus is trying to make? Well, this waiting period that we're in is not to be a time of inaction. In fact, he's left us with business to do. He's left us with a task to complete. What is the task? Well, like a coin, it's got two sides. On one side of the minor, God has left us with it written the great commandment. It says in Luke 10, 27, and he answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbour as yourself. So on one side of the coin is great uh, commandment. On the other side of the coin is written great commission. So Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's the task that God has left us until his Son returns. We're to love God, we're to love each other, and we're to love the lost. Or as our threefold statement as a church goes maturity ministry and mission as servants of christ we have a job to do 
until Jesus returns. Perhaps the disciples thought their service would be over when they got to Jerusalem. You know, it's been three years, it's been quite hard, but now we'll be able to put our feet up. But Jesus is saying, no, actually, your service is just beginning. Waiting for me to return is not just going to be twiddling your thumbs. I've got work for you to do. So there are things that the servants are to do. There are things that we are to do until Jesus returns. But notice as well that Jesus makes a big deal of the fact that the servants are rewarded for their service. When the nobleman returns as king, he rewards their faithful service, doesn't he? What does he reward them with? He rewards them with more service. Do you notice that? So he gives them coins, business to do. Then when he returns, he sets them over cities. They've been faithful with a little while he was away. So he puts them in charge over a lot. And two things we see with this reward that they get. The first is that they're rewarded in line with their service. There does seem to be a difference in the scale of reward. Now this has implications for us that I think we can only grasp at this morning. But there is a notion that in the life to come there are degrees of reward. Exactly what that means and what that looks like we're simply not told. But we do have some clues, don't we? Because the second thing we see is that they're rewarded by more service. He doesn't return and say, job done, put your feet up, time to relax. He commends them for their service. He says, well done. And then he sends them back to work, bigger work. The reward for responsible service is more responsibility. And perhaps this is a clue to what our reward looks like. If it fills you with dread, the idea of continuing work in heaven, if you like, or service, remember that our work now is hindered by sin. In the life to come, it won't be. Service will be pure joy. There'll be no futility, no failures, no tears. We will serve our God joyfully and unburdened by sin, enjoying the reward that he has given us. But there is one in the parable who's not rewarded. We see that in verses 20 to 26. Let's look at those again. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your miner, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You know that I was a severe, you knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the miner from him and give it to the one who has ten miners. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten miners. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, some commentators say this is an unbeliever pretending to be a believer. Some commentators say this is a believer who serves unfaithfully. But we must remember, as I said earlier, this is not an allegory. We're not supposed to find exact links to uh, real life in every single place. There's not a one-to-one correlation between people in the story and people in real life. We don't find a category that fits perfectly here, but we do need to heed the lesson that it teaches. 
because it's there to teach a point. And the point is, get on with what God has told you to do. It doesn't really matter if this is an unbeliever who is cast out or a believer who barely makes it through. Neither of those is preferable, is it? Neither of those is what we're aiming for as believers. The parable is there to teach us to get on with what God has given us to do. The great commandment and the great commission. Maturity, ministry and mission. Jesus' servants get on with Jesus' business. And if you're not involved with Jesus' business, in what sense are you Jesus' servant? What are you doing for the kingdom? What have you done for Jesus lately? When he returns and asks us, so what did you do in this life for me in the time between? How did you do with the task that I gave you? What are we going to say? What is my answer going to be? Well, well, Lord, I was, I was so scared that I, I hid my faith under a handkerchief. I kept my head down and I just hoped to scrape through. Lord, I never got round to doing kingdom work. I, I was busy doing my own thing. I have lots of things on. I kept putting it on hold. I, I kept coming back to it, thinking I'll come back to it later. I just never had the time. Or perhaps it would be, well, I, I didn't think I was good enough to serve. I folded it up in a napkin and left it to those who were better at doing it. What's the Lord going to say? It's very harsh, isn't it? Verse 22, wicked servant. Shocking, isn't it? I can't bear the thought of actually hearing that from God. But do I actually live in a way that does something about it? Now, don't hear me wrong. Our salvation is secure in Christ. But as we've seen in this passage, our reward, it would seem, is variable. The Bible teaches that elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 15, that our work is, uh, those whose work is burnt off will suffer loss, though they themselves will be saved, as though through fire. There is some kind of variable reward in the world to come. Not a new idea either, Jonathan Edwards. One of his resolutions, he said, I am resolved to endeavour to attain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. He believed in living now for God, serving now for God to the max. And he believed that God would reward him. And our passage would seem to back him up, wouldn't it? Are we working for that reward? Now, God is not austere, the harsh master that the servant makes him out to be. But God is a holy God, a just God. He rewards what is right and he punishes what is wrong. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9 at 24, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Now when we looked in Hebrews, remember we said that winning the race is finishing the race, isn't it? But that doesn't mean that we dawdle in the race, does it? It doesn't mean that we drag our feet like the wicked servant. We run to win the prize. Are we running to win the prize? Are we serving to please the master? Are we engaged in his business? Or are we so taken up in our own that we have no time for that? Jesus warns us by showing us this servant that it matters how you serve God. It matters whether you're lazy and lax or whether you're diligent and faithful. It matters how you wait 
for Jesus to return. Because waiting does not equal inaction. But the story doesn't end there. There is a side to the story that we haven't considered, another part of the plot that Jesus puts in there. And that brings us to our final point. Not wanting plus not waiting equals not neutral. Have a look at verses 14 and 27. So as he goes away, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And then down to 27. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, this part of the story actually reflects that story of Archelaus as well. Archelaus was not liked. If you look at Matthew 2.22, it's on the back of your notice sheets. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. This is Joseph. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So it seems as though they would have gone back to Judea, but Archelaus is there. And Joseph is afraid of Archelaus. He was not a liked man. He was a real piece of work. uh, So much so that they actually move all the way to the north to avoid him. When uh, he left to have his title affirmed by uh, the emperor in Rome, the people of Judea did actually send a delegation after him. They did actually send people to say, we don't want him to be our ruler. They were partly successful. Archelaus never became king. In the way that Herod did. He was given the inferior title of ethnarch. But he did come back. And he did rule over the people. The difference is in our story. That here seemingly the nobleman comes back as king. He's been vindicated. He's given absolute rule. So the delegation fails. And the nobleman is installed as king. So what does he do on his return? Well, he orders that those who opposed his rule be slaughtered. Now, this is hard, isn't it, as we read this story? But the implication is clear. Refusing Christ's rule in your life is not a neutral activity. Sometimes people think of it that way, don't they? You want Christ to be your king? Great for you, not for me. But Christ's claim to rule is universal. It's not that he's the king of some and not the king of others. He's actually the king of everybody. It's just that some acknowledge his rule and some do not. To not acknowledge his rule is not a neutral activity. It's seditious. It's treason. Now, we live in a democracy, don't we? We've seen that in action this week. The people are sovereign. Whoever rules serves the people. Theoretically, anyway. The universe, though, is not a democracy. It's a monarchy. There is a king on the throne of the universe. And his name is Jesus. Unlike the king in this passage, he is loving and caring and compassionate. We can think no other, having read this far in Luke, can we? As we've seen him heal the sick, as we've seen him raise the dead, as we've seen him show compassion on the orphan and the widow. But refusal to accept this king who, shares, who cares for his subjects is not neutral. It's open rebellion. Think about it. If you set yourself up against this king, you're setting yourself up against the one who will bring justice, who will bring freedom, 
who will bring compassion, who will bring peace. Working against him or refusing to acknowledge him is opposing all that is good. It's working for the enemy who wants injustice, slavery, cruelty and war. So not choosing Jesus is not morally neutral. It's a travesty. So what does the king do? He has those who oppose him put to death, slaughtered in front of him. It's a reminder for all those who do not want Jesus to rule over them that the alternative is hell. Hell is the reality that Jesus is alluding to for all those who oppose his good, just and rightful reign. And there is no middle ground. In the story, perhaps they, they might have known what their rebellion would mean. Perhaps they hoped their delegation would work. But they were wrong, weren't they? And now they must face the consequences. I must tell you this, if you didn't know this before, that if you do not acknowledge Jesus' rightful rule over your life, in this life, you will face the consequences. If you do not bow the knee to King Jesus now, then you'll face hell on Judgment Day in the world to come. I don't say that lightly or spitefully. I say that to warn you. Because there's an untold story going on behind Jesus' parable. You see, in reality, while the nobleman was away, the servants begged the seditious, the rebels, to switch sides. They pleaded with them to join the new king's side. The untold story is actually the king had issued a decree, a decree that offered pardon, offered forgiveness to any of those rebels who would switch sides before he returned. There was no need for anyone to be slaughtered if they would just acknowledge his reign and bow the knee. So the problem then here is not a king's short temper, but a rebel's refusal to repent and to recant. It was only unrepentant rebels, if you like, that were slaughtered. So where are you this morning as we're engaged in this big wait? Perhaps you're like these servants here, not waiting at all. Please remember what we've seen. Not waiting plus not wanting is not neutral. But God does allow U-turns. He allows changes of mind. But don't put it off. You don't know when the king will return or when he will call you from this life. Change sides now. Become a servant rather than a seditious rebel. Perhaps you are a servant, but your zeal in serving the Lord has run dry. Maybe you used to be engaged in the Lord's business, but now you've settled. All the energy and thought and effort that you used to spend serving the Lord is now wrapped up in that napkin. Perhaps you need to resolve again to serve the Lord. Perhaps that resolution of Jonathan Edwards is for you. Resolve to endeavour to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. And it finishes this way. With all the power, might, vigour and vehemence, yea, violence, read fire really, I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. That's what Jonathan Edwards wanted to do. He wanted to work with all his power and strength in serving the Lord for his happiness in the world to come. He knew that he needed oomph in his service. 
Or could you resolve today to put that oomph back in your service? Or perhaps, finally, you're engaged in serving the Lord actively. You're living out the great commandment and the great commission. Or keep going. I think that's what Jesus would say here. Keep going. A reward awaits you. God sees what you are doing, your hard work and your service. A commendation awaits you. Well done, good servant. He cares. He sees your service and he will reward you in the life to come. So when it's hard, when all your earthly energy is gone, look to Jesus. Look to the reward that is to come. In the big wait, keep waiting. It's not a pointless wait. It's a worthwhile wait. And so we say, come Lord Jesus, as we wait for his return. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he did come into our world. Father, thank you that he shared with us this parable that shows us uh, of the time that we live in. Father, we pray that you would help us to be engaged in your business. Father, we pray that you'd help us to be serving the Lord wholeheartedly. Father, some of us feel so tired. Uh, Father, some of us feel so uh, hard oppressed. Father, we pray that you would give us the energy that we need. Father, pray that you would give us that oomph, Father, if we've lost it, to serve you. Help us as we seek to reach our neighbours, our friends, our family with the gospel. Pray that you'd help us as we seek to build one another up in love. Father, pray that you'd help us as we seek to grow in our love and knowledge of you. Father, pray that you would help us to do your business well and help us to look forward to that reward when you tell us, well done, good servant. In Jesus' name, amen.